The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. I sound really awful, right? Well, I kind of feel that way, too. I came back from Vegetarian Summer Fest, which was fabulous, as usual. If you haven't been to summer camp for vegans, you really need to check it out in Pennsylvania every summer. But I had no voice at all. And I have so little one now that instead of trying to um, speak to you through this hour with two fabulous guests, I decided to bring on a fabulous co-host. You already know her if you've listened to this show. She's Danielle Legg, who works with me here at Main Street Vegan. She is also a magnificent vegan activist in her own right. You can find her online at This Girl Is Veg. And today we're going to be talking about vegans' two favorite subjects, fabulous food and animal rights. So I'm going to turn it over at this moment to Danielle. And when I just can't contain myself, I'm going to jump in and say something with my raspy voice and play it later in the future and be grateful for for my healing. So uh, blessings to everybody. Have a wonderful show. Hello, everyone. We're going to explore animal issues in the second part of the show with Wayne Shun, founder of Direct Action Everywhere. Right now, we're going to jump into a delicious food segment with Laura Jane, the Rawtarian. Laura Jane is a super popular blogger at therawtarian.com. She hosts Raw Food Podcasts on iTunes and is the author of a beautiful new book, Cook Lively, 100 Quick and Easy Plant-Based Recipes for High Energy, Glowing Skin, and Vibrant Living Using 10 Ingredients or Less. You can find 100-plus free, simple, satiating raw food recipes at therawtarian.com. Welcome, Laura Jane Coors. Thank you so much, Danielle. And hi to Victoria there in the background. I'm really excited to be on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. I have to start and say that when I went vegan and I think it was like a year into my veganism, I bought a Vitamix and your website was the first that I found and your recipes were the first in my Vitamix. So thank you so much for that. Oh it was my actually, gosh. Yeah, That's it was your cash amazing. That, yeah. that touches my heart. Yeah. Um, I had to get online. I'm like, is it the same person? Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we are. I have been around for a while, not as long as Victoria in terms of like doing amazing stuff. Stuff, but I, um, I just really love hearing that story from you, and yay, yay for good Vitamixes. Right. So let me ask you, how did you get started with raw food? 
Well, I grew up in a pretty healthy household, but I completely rejected all of my mom's lentil casseroles, and I couldn't wait to get on my own and eat, like, junk food galore. Um, so, But I, I ended up dating a vegan-ish guy back in the day. And so around 2001, I became what I like to call a junk food vegetarian. But as we all know, like cookies and chips and frozen burritos and soda, it's easy to be uh, an unhealthy vegetarian. So did that for a while, but was certainly not feeling great. Um, And, you know, gaining an extra five or seven pounds every Mm -hmm. year and just um, not feeling great. So in about, I think it was 2009, I just did a raw vegan challenge for 30 days because I, I needed a change. And um, I was just expecting to do it for 30 days and go back. But by the end of it, I just felt so amazing. And I learned a lot of um, new ways of making food by the end of the mm-hmm. 30 days that I, it just completely transformed me. That's awesome. So my follow-up then is, do you feel like you had to be, like, did you have a lot to learn when you were learning as far as, like, did you have to be an expert in the kitchen, and was it hard to start raw, and do you find it hard to maintain eating raw? Um, excellent questions. At the beginning, I really did not have any really cooking skills of any kind, even in a normal way. Um, mm-hmm. now I, as, a, as that junk food vegetarian, I was just kind of microwaving frozen burritos and, mm-hmm. you know, eating frozen pizza or Mr. Noodles. Um, so I really didn't have a lot of cooking skills at all. So when I went raw vegan, it was new to me, and which, as I'm sure you too and many of your listeners know as well, you're using a high-speed blender a lot and also a food processor. So preparing those raw recipes was quite new to me, but I didn't really have any cooking skills. So for me, it was... Actually, it actually worked in my favor because in those 30 days, I really kind of learned a new way of cooking, and that became normal for me to, you know, Mm -hmm. make sauces in a blender or make brownies in a food processor. Um, So for me, that became my normal, and also the ingredients of, like, raw vegan um, ingredients, so that would be, like, fruits, vegetables, Mm -hmm. nuts and seeds, that just kind of came my became my recipe kind of like sandbox in which to make recipes out of mm-hmm. the food. Um, I had no experience, but I just kind of learned on the fly. That's awesome. So we had mentioned your cookbook, which is absolutely beautiful. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about Cook Lively that just came out in May this year? Thank you. Yeah, I, it was my first cookbook. So as as you know, I've been kind of around the food blogging scene for quite yeah. a while. Um, but it was my first first book, and it was it, it basically is a traditional cookbook in that it has a lot of photos and a hundred recipes. And then at mm-hmm. the beginning, there's kind of a couple of chapters that help um, you know introduce you to some of the ingredients. And it's really aimed for um, people that are really looking to make a new change and mm-hmm. that not have a lot of cooking skills. Um, one of my sort of like twist or shtick in my recipe development, I actually don't like to call it recipe development. I like to think of it as recipe simplification because I actually don't really like spending a lot of time in the kitchen myself. And so usually my recipes and all of the recipes in this book have less than mm-hmm. 10 ingredients. And they're usually using very common ingredients. So like yeah. celery, carrots, apples, oranges, bananas, and not so much expensive or um, obscure ingredients. I, I live in Canada and most of the time I lived on a small rural island. So okay. like not always practical to try to get, you know, fancy ingredients. So that's right. kind of where the book comes from, and it's really aimed towards people who um, don't want to spend a lot of time in the kitchen and who are just looking to eat better than they used to eat. That's, I mean, that was actually the huge thing when um, I found your your blog was, I was like, what? I only needed, I think it was like cashews, lemon, pepper, nutritional yeast, and like what vegan household doesn't have that? And water, like it was just so easy that yours was like my go-to for quick raw stuff because it's just so simple. 
Thank you, and that that makes me happy because that's exactly what I try to achieve because I I know um, when I look at a recipe and I I literally see a lot of ingredients, my eyes kind of go like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm just like, oh, never mind. So what would you say is like a simple raw vegan recipe that for you is just like always no fail? Well, okay. Another thing you may have noticed about me is I'm heavy on the sweets. I have a major sweet tooth. And so especially people who maybe haven't made a lot of raw recipes before, Mm -hmm. I would definitely encourage opting for a dessert because who doesn't love a healthy dessert? Um, Specifically, I have a brownie recipe in my book, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's called the Famous Raw Brownies. And it does require a food processor, as a lot of uh, my recipes do, but it's basically like you're throwing in some walnuts, some dates, some cocoa powder, salt, bit of coconut, and you just whiz that up in the food processor and then smoosh it down into a cake, you know, a, a brownie pan or anything that you have and just pop that in the fridge. And it's it's a no-bake and no effort and also, like, it's it's impossible to mess that one up. So, um and then I have an optional uh, chocolate icing recipe as, as well for that one. And I find um, a lot of recipes that always turn out, no matter mm-hmm. how you, um, you know, how much experience you have. Those are what I, those are keepers for sure. Yeah, definitely. We're actually looking through the uh, cookbook <laughs> desserts, like drooling over here. Um, what would you say are some of your favorite tips for helping people to add more fruits and vegetables just to their everyday life? Firstly, I love how you phrased that in that it, I do like to talk about it and think about it in terms of adding stuff, adding Mm -hmm. healthy ingredients to your life, um, as opposed to blocking or banning like, Oh, I'm not allowed to eat that, or I'm not allowed to eat this. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. I actually, it all kind of starts with what you're bringing into your home. So mm-hmm. I definitely talk a lot about um, just sometimes it can be allocating a little bit of extra money to your grocery bill to allow yourself to buy ingredients that are healthy that you love. Mm-hmm. Okay. For me, um, I love fresh berries, you know, fresh blueberries, strawberries, that kind of thing, grapes. Um but I don't always allow myself to kind of splurge on those. So I think sometimes mm-hmm. a great tip is just to give yourself permission to buy the healthy ingredients that you do like. And also you don't have to try to force yourself to eat ingredients that you don't like. Um, I know on one of your recent shows you had Rip, uh, I can never say his last name, Rip, Rip Ethel, thank you. And he was talking about how eggplant, he just can't stand it. And I, I feel like, we all have ingredients that we don't really like, so it's good to just focus on the ones that you do and just relax and avoid the ones you don't. Um, other other things as well, just really basic tips are I always say that, um, you know, 5 o'clock at dinner time is not really the time that you want to be cooking. Um, right. It's usually I, I really like to try to get a little bit um, – in advance with my cooking, so sometimes I'll I'll make some lentils or I'll make something you know at bedtime the night before, and then that helps me okay. um, to make a you know a healthier choice when I am hungry at like that kind of crazy rush hour time at home. Right, so kind of meal prepping. Exactly, but it also doesn't have to be like planning a whole huge menu, but just sometimes cooking mm-hmm. one ingredient in advance or something can really help. Okay. So, Laura Jane, can I just get clear? You mentioned lentils, and yet you're called the rawtarian. So my sense is that you're not 100% raw. Do we need to be? Oh, my gosh. Great question. So my my trajectory was um, from that 30-day challenge, I was 100% raw for over five years, um, and that ended probably in about 2015. And I think part of it for me was, I got so good at at developing, you know, tasty things with cashews. And at the end, I really didn't feel like I was eating in a way that was really feeling as great as it was. I was kind of eating too many nuts, and I had hacked the system a little too well. So for me, 
um, what I decided to do around 2015 was add just a few additional ingredients that I felt really felt really good in my body and were you know higher sources of protein so things like um, cooking some lentils maybe cooking some quinoa and also um, one thing about my book as well is I love dehydrating and I still have a dehydrator and I use it a lot but I wanted to um, provide oven directions for Mm -hmm. let's say I have like um, a, a baked uh, pancake recipe in the book, and I because I recognize that not everybody has a dehydrator, and um, most people have an oven. So I wanted to take all the best things about raw food, and it's like predominantly a raw book, absolutely, and it's 100% vegan. Um, but there's a few choice ingredients in there that just allows you to feel a little bit more satiated, especially for people who are used to, um, you know, eating the standard American diet. Awesome. Thank you so much. I saw the quinoa in there. I was like, ooh, cooking quinoa. Well, <laughs> it lots to being in Canada in the winter, do you feel a little more balanced so that you can have a little bit of warmer food now? I certainly found in the winter... I mean, in the summertime, we're always craving, you know, watermelon and a salad, and that is a lot easier to eat completely raw at that time of year. But, you know, when we're sort of freezing in the in the depths of winter in January, um, I don't think that you have to have, uh, like, I, I did it for five years, and, and I have found ways to be, like, when you're raw vegan, you can also heat things up, so you're not always eating um the chilled food, but it certainly, um, for me, I found it a little bit hearty. And also, I, I was very thin when I was completely raw, and I, I feel like I'm still happy with my weight at where it is now, but I feel like I was really cold all the time, and I didn't, that is not good for anyone. Mm. Awesome. I, I love how you're so balanced and accepting about everything. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, I feel like the thing that I really um, get the most excited about and in my, you know, work if I'm working one-on-one with people is helping people get excited at the beginning of their phase um, towards healthier eating because I think that's when I have made the most impact and that's when people really like, I'm sure we can all relate to when you see, like, a friend or a parent of ours or something who's like, oh, this is vegan, but, hmm, it tastes good. So I really um, feel like that's kind of my purpose in the food world is to help people move towards eating more fruits and vegetables. And I feel like often my recipes can be a stepping stone for people, probably like both of you who've been, you know, eating really healthy for quite a while and kind of know what you're doing. But I I like to stay in that zone and helping people um, find the joys of this kind of eating. Thank you so much for joining us today, Laura Jean. Um, Her website, again, is therawtarian.com. Her book is Cook Lively. And we will have the URLs um, on all of the social media as well as the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. Thank you again, Laura Jean. Thank you so much, Victoria and Danielle, and take care, Victoria. Thank you. We'll be back after the break.
like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. of spiritually conscious living start now for a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential tune in to the yoga hour living the eternal way with yogacharya ellen grace o'brien every thursday morning at 10 a.m central 8 a.m pacific only on unity online radio the voice of an awakening world listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we do want to let you know about our blog post this week at MainStreetVegan.net. It's about teaching vegan cooking classes as a great way to have extended outreach. It's written by Greg Lawson of El Paso, Texas, longtime host of the PBS radio program Animal Concerns of Texas. And guess what? We have a sponsor, and Danielle is going to be telling you all about that. It is my pleasure to let you in on some good news from our current sponsor, HealthIQ.com. You know them from their fun and challenging online health quizzes, but they've also teamed up with many of the country's top life insurance companies to offer savings to some very special people, certain athletes, and guess who else? Us! That's right, there's savings for vegans on life insurance because someone is paying attention to the science that attests to vegans' overall positive health status. Some questions you might have are, is this health insurance? No. It's life insurance, the kind that protects your family if you're not here anymore. And are they a vegan company? No. But the only dietary choice qualifying for the savings right now anyway is ours. Check it out at healthiq.com backslash backslash Main Street. And we'll put that on the Main Street Vegan show notes too. And thanks, Health IQ, for noticing how well we're doing. Well, we're basically doing well. Some of us have funky voices. Well, I'm doing. (laughs) This is so exciting. I can hardly wait. We're going to be talking to Wayne Shung. He has started a major movement in this country. He has. Wayne Shung is the co-founder of a global animal rights network, Direct Action Everywhere. It's DXE. His work as an open rescue activist has been reported on in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and ABC's Nightline. And he's recently featured in a virtual reality documentary, Operation Aspen, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival um, in January 2017. Prior to co-founding DXE, Wayne studied behavioral economics at NSF, graduate fellow at MIT, served on the faculty at Northwestern School of Law, and practiced securities law while maintaining a pro bono practice representing victims of domestic violence. Welcome, Wayne. It's an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, it's amazing what you're doing and how much attention you're getting. So for people that aren't aren't aware, just start us on DXE. What is it and what do you do and what makes you different? 
Yeah, well, DXC started in 2013, just four years ago, and our mission is quite simple, to rescue animals no matter what it takes, to empower people to speak strongly for the animals, and then build a world where we can abolish every slaughterhouse in this country within one generation. We believe we can make it happen. We believe we have to train people, have good decision-making skills, and have the confidence to create the world that we want to create within one generation. So I, in your um, intro, said that you were an attorney and a professor of law. So what brought you into animal rights? It's funny. I um, started out as a law student in 2003 at the University of Chicago Law School thinking I wanted to be an animal lawyer. And I ran into one major obstacle immediately, which is that animals are just conceived of as things. And Steve Wise, the Non-Human Rights Project, has done really great work on this. Gary Franciano has written about this as well. But as long as animals are conceived as, as property, it's very difficult for advocates, even in legal systems, and even when cruelty is happening, to do anything for the animals because they have no rights. They have no basic interests that are protected by law. And so the only ones who have rights are the ones who own them. And unfortunately, it's usually the owners of the animals who are torturing them. So that was pretty dramatic for me uh, in kind of uh, educating me about the limitations of kind of working within the system. And so for most of the past 10 years, since 2003, 2004, when I started as an animal advocate in mm-hmm. law school University of Chicago, I've been trying to figure out what we can do that actually does work. Um, I've looked at movements. I've looked at data. I've looked at anecdotes. I've talked to experienced activists from the gay rights movement, from the civil rights movement, from the women's rights movement. And the conclusion I've reached is that we need a powerful grassroots movement for nonviolent direct action. That's what we did with DXC in 2013. So in our movement today, Wayne, there seems like there's so much infighting and so many people saying, uh, you go too far, you don't go far enough, I'm purer than you, I'm doing it right. How can we possibly all work together for the animals when, when we're sort of denominationalizing? You're making a really good point. And I've always said, and, and ask scholars and activists and prior movements have said the same thing, that a great movement is kind of like an orchestra. Not everyone's playing the same instrument. Not everyone's going to have exactly the same rhythm and tune, but when it comes together, it's beautiful and powerful. But for an orchestra to actually work, they have to coordinate. They have to work together and play together rather than against each other. And too often what happens in the animal rights movement, as in many other movements, is that we fight with each other. And so, you know, one of the really basic cultural principles we have at DXC is we don't call people out. We don't call our groups out. We don't call our own organizers out. Frankly, we don't even call out individuals who are abusing animals. We're, our goal is to change our culture, to change the systems that allow animals being abused. And we have an optimistic, powerful, and positive vision that people actually have compassion in their hearts. And even the corporate CEOs we're going against, like John Mackey at Whole Foods or Craig uh, Jalik at, at Costco, you know, we, we appeal to their better angels and try to have good faith with them. And I think if we have that same good faith for each other in the movement, we can build a powerful movement for change. But we have to overcome the small disagreements we have about tactics and strategies and realize that our values and our objectives are the same. If we do that, we can make a lot of change. Well, that's how I see it, mm-hmm. for sure. But I do have a question because I know a lot of people have criticized DXE for going after people who, who are starting to be on our side. I mean, John Mackey's personally vegan. He still sells sure. other stuff. Um, Chipotle is a place where vegans can eat, but it's also a place that you guys have targeted. How do you respond to that? We are challenging Whole Foods and John Mackey, not as individuals and not because they're promoting vegan options, which we support and think is great, but because of consumer fraud, because we think they're taking advantage of the compassionate sentiments that ordinary Americans have and transforming it to support a system of violence. And I'll give you one trivial example. In November of 2015, we investigated the highest rated turkey farm in the entire Whole Foods universe. It's called Distal Turkey Ranch. And Whole Foods had been aggressively marketing this turkey ranch as free range. If you read their marketing, it says these turkeys are raised in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. It sounds like a spa or luxury resort when, in fact, it's a factory farm. And I totally support John Mackey and other corporate titans in trying to promote vegan options and, frankly, even improving the conditions of animals. When they're being dishonest and fraudulently charging consumers more money for doing the same torturous things for animals, somebody's got to point it out because the USDA is not going to do it. The corporations themselves aren't going to do it. So it's up to us as grassroots activists to do it. And one thing about Whole Foods is when we first investigated them in January 2015 for fraud in in their egg supply, funny thing happened on their Twitter account. They started pushing vegan products almost the entire day. And so I think they understand their brand depends partly on the moral and ethical halo they get from treating animals compassionately, whether that's with humane meat or so-called humane meat. We all know there's no such thing as humane meat, that killing an animal is intrinsically an act of violence. But whether it's humane meat for Whole Foods or pushing vegan products, they get something to their brand. They benefit from that. And, and we'd love to work with Whole Foods. We'll work with anybody in promoting vegan products, but we also have to take a stand against deception and violence. 
and we hope the entire animal rights movement, and frankly, even folks within Whole Foods will support us in taking that stand. Wow. If you were an animal rights activist, I think you should be an evangelist. I mean, you're seriously extremely charismatic. I, I love listening to you. So um, I have mentioned also you ha- your work as an open rescue activist. Can you tell me a little bit about what open rescue is? And in my research, what is the difference uh, between open rescue and what the ALF used to do? So going into labs sure. or factory farms and taking animals. Absolutely. So back from the 1980s, people were breaking into labs and fur farms and even factory farms to try and release animals from the torment they're going through. But starting in the late 1980s, there is an amazing woman in Australia by the name of Patty Mark. She's a grandmother, just a good hearted, nonviolent, very peaceful person who was just so torn up by the horrific scenes she was seeing from these factory farms. She wanted to do something about it. And she started working with some activists who had actually had been involved in the early raids in the animal rights movement in the United States, including a guy by the name of Crystal Rose, who's the founder of Last Chance for Animals. Mm-hmm. And they decided, hey, you know, if we, if we think there's something wrong happening, if we think that corporations should not be entitled to torture animals, it's time for us to be the change we want to see in the world. It's time for us to act towards the animals as we would if the world were a just place. And what we would do if we saw an animal being tortured, and this were a dog or a cat, or frankly a chicken, if it weren't in a factory farm, is try and help them. And that's exactly what open rescue activists do. They go into these farms and focus on assisting animals in need. But the other wrinkle to open rescue is the fact it's not just a rescue. It's open. It is an act of civil disobedience. It's an act of open defiance of an unjust system. We believe that we should be proud of our actions, that we're happy for the world to scrutinize our actions and see our faces, learn our names, read about our biographies, because we believe what we're doing is right. And what we've seen is over the past three years since DXC's Open Rescue Network started, we have gone into farms and slaughterhouses and other places of violence 14 times, and not even a single activist has spent a day in jail. And partly that's because the industry knows they cannot defend this conduct. They cannot defend torturing animals. And when they come after activists in the court of public opinion or, frankly, in the court of law, we can and we will win. That is amazing because that was actually one of the uh, the sort of arguments against open rescue is that the resources that are needed then to defend anyone who is arrested and, and legal action taken. So it's interesting that you're saying that has not happened. We've only had one case of legal charges to date. Um, it was a San Joaquin County investigation mm-hmm. of a Costco egg farm. And to date, you know, there's been nothing serious. The charges aren't uh, aren't the most serious charges. And we anticipate the charge will be handled fairly easily, um, partly because it's it's a vegan prosecutor. So <laughs> that's awesome. So you uh, were also recently in the New York Times for a virtual reality investigation of the largest pork producer in the world. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so Smithfield Smithfield is a massive multinational corporation that's now owned by a Chinese conglomerate. And they kill, I think it's something like 25 million pigs every year. About one-fourth of every single pig killed in the United States is killed by Smithfield. And they have one giant farm in, in, in Milford, Utah, in southern Utah. And we kind of just kind of half-jokingly call it the Death Star because it quite possibly can take claim to being the most evil and most violent and suffering-filled place on this earth because – 1.2 million gentle, sensitive baby pigs are raised, abused, confined, tortured, and then ultimately slaughtered in this facility every year. And this is a facility that is under armed guard. They have historically prosecuted oh, wow. activists under the ag gag law in Utah that thankfully was just struck down a few days ago. So there's a reason the, the state of Utah and the industry in Utah has been so protective of not allowing activists inside these facilities because they know when they are exposed – the public is absolutely horrified. But for most of the past couple of years, people have been scared to do activism in places like Utah and at facilities like Circle 4 because of laws like the ag law. And we decided, no, we need to take direct action. We need to show the world what's happening, no matter what the consequences are for us. And so over the past six or seven months, we've been investigating Circle 4, going into this farm and documenting scenes that frankly are as if they were from the worst horror movie you can imagine. Things like baby piglets drowning in their own mother's urine and feces because their mothers cannot turn around in the gestation crate and farrowing crate to help their own babies. Things like baby piglets feasting on their own mother's blood and flesh because they're starving to death and their mothers are too sick, too starved and too mutilated to produce milk. And Circle 4 and Smithfield and Costco have the audacity to claim that these are humane animal conditions and that the animals are not being mistreated when even by their own numbers, by the industry's own figures, 
about 10% of these baby piglets will starve to death or be trampled to death in the intense confinement of a factory farm. So Smithfield and Circle 4 have claimed that they've abolished crates, and what they have not told the world is that abolishing crates does not mean that farrowing crates have gone away. And farrowing crates are the crates that mothers are raised in and forced to endure when they're actually raising their kids. So every single time they're impregnated, forcibly impregnated, they give birth to their babies, they're stuffed into a crate as small as their own body, and these poor mothers cannot even turn around to look their own babies in their eyes. And these corporations have the audacity to describe these conditions as humane. But the world needs to hear what happened, and that's exactly what we did with that investigation. We sent it to the New York Times, and they covered us very well uh, just last week as a result of the investigation. That's amazing. I I just need to come in for the baby boomers. What is a virtual reality investigation? (laughs) So we're really lucky to be working with some incredible tech companies in the Bay Area, including a company called Condition One, which is on the frontier of what's called virtual reality or augmented reality technology. And the idea behind this is... We want to put someone into a 360-degree headset so that when they put this headset on, it's not like they're looking at a TV screen. They actually feel like they're there. In 360 degrees, whatever way you turn your head and even in your peripheral vision, the camera is capturing every scene that the person is shooting is actually seeing themselves. And, and you know, from time immemorial, since the beginnings of storytelling, every storyteller has had one mission. We want to make people feel like they're actually in the scene. They're part of the story. And what VR does, what virtual reality does, is it makes people feel so immersed in the scene that they feel like they're there. Um, and the the mantra of the industry after every single one of these investigations, the propaganda they put out to the media is, oh, that's, you know, selective footage. It's edited. It's, it's you know, it's just a small slice of the entire scene. But when we put people into a VR headset and when we shoot with these prototype VR cameras, we're showing people exactly what we see. You see exactly what we see. You hear what we see, what he, we hear. And maybe eventually you'll even smell what we smell. And because of that, people are transformed. They go into these VR experiences and they realize, oh, my God, the scale of this facility. I mean, it's not just one animal. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of mother pigs screaming at the top of their lungs and banging their heads against the cage doors. And that's one of the most powerful scenes from from the VR piece. When we first walk into the gestation crate facility and literally there are hundreds of mother pigs just slamming their heads against the cage doors. And you hear and see all that. You can only capture that in virtual reality. It's why we believe so much in the technology. Mm-hmm. So is is this the direction that DHE is going in now? Do you plan to do more of this? Yeah, you know, again, we're lucky enough that the, the, the VR company we work with, which is one of the top companies in the industry, has basically given us their technology because they think our content is amazing. Um, their mission is to take people places where they've never gone before, to the tops of mountaintops, in the middle of a hurricane. One place that people have not gone and probably will never get to experience personally themselves is walking to a factory farm, much less being part of a rescue mission. But we found is that even people who are not animal rights actors, not vegetarian, not even interested in animal rights, want to be a part of a rescue mission because every single person on this planet and every cultural tradition believes in compassion for animals. And, you know, we have all these kind of silly kids movies like Finding Nemo or even Moana where like people are rescuing animals and we all cheer them on. So everyone likes to be a part of a rescue mission. And, and frankly, there are tons of video games that people play where they're heroes who go into some abusive place and rescue some animals. And with our virtual reality experience, we're not just replicating it and simulating it. We're, we're taking people on an actual rescue mission. And that is really empowering people. They go in, see the horrible things that are happening to animals that come out feeling very empowered to make change. And they want to get out into the streets to protest. They want to go out and educate people. They want to join us in open rescue missions. They want to donate to the cause because they feel like they're part of the team. And that is only possible virtual reality. So we plan to continue doing this as long as condition one is willing to give us the cameras for free, which is one of the really incredible advantages of having a really powerful relationship with a tech company is, you know, we can do these things in a budget of $200,000 a year. That's awesome. So my question, too, is what if you have someone who wants to participate in these open rescues or really any of the actions that you do? What if they have, you know, a career or something else that keeps them from being able to participate in that? Because there are lots of what ifs there. How would they participate? Well, one thing I would say is that we've had professionals, including engineers at Dropbox, lawyers from DLA Piper, the largest law firm in the world, go with us in open rescues. We've now taken, I think it's over 50 people into these hell holes and, and, and facilitate and train them to take animals out. But the way we've done this is we, we've provided a massive amount of educational resources. So we definitely don't encourage people who don't have any sort of experience or training to just run into a farm and try mm-hmm. and take animals out because there are biosecurity protocols you have to worry about. 
there's uh, animal care protocols you should be knowledgeable about, and we don't want anyone to go in there and ultimately harm the animals. So what we do is we offer trainings around the country, and the best place to do training is to come to the DXC Forum in Berkeley. And next year, it's going to be a collaboration with the Save Movement, Anita Crunch, because Anita was our keynote speaker. Yes! Save activists. We're all out there I, with Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So, it's really so I met her so early in the Toronto Pig Save Movement, so it's really amazing. Anita is a done. hero. And yes, she is. personally, you know, has assisted animals at slaughterhouses for years. Mm-hmm. And next year, we're going to have trainings not just for vigils and not just for protests, not just for community building, for open rescue as well. And it's an all-day training where you're going to learn all the ins and outs Everything from researching farms and identifying a good target to doing the animal care and producing a powerful video for the media afterwards. Um, but we do other trainings around the country, and we're hoping to get the support and financing to do more of these trainings. But after you've done a training, the next important thing is to cultivate a team. Find a team of people you really trust because these are really high-intensity, high-risk actions, mm-hmm. and you really need to work with people you trust a lot. So find a group of friends you really believe in after you've gone to a training. Maybe one of your friends has already been to an open rescue. Um, mm-hmm. Because they're part of the DXC network and, and they've already been out on the mission and they can educate and train all of you uh, because they've been out on the mission themselves. But we want to see this create domino effects across the country and the world. And our objective is to continue double the number of open rescues to the point that five years from now we're seeing hundreds and hundreds of open rescues. And instead of one or two or three New York Times stories every year, we're seeing front page coverage in every newspaper in the country because activists, ordinary people across the country are just going right into the farms and taking the animals out and the media has to pay attention. I just can hear so many people out there in regular America just saying, but but it's stealing. Yeah. It seems like we're at a position in the movement where it's like halfway. I remember once seeing a, a pond full of, of um, tadpoles returning into frogs, and I didn't realize that they spend some time where they're half frog and half tadpole. And yeah. that's how I see our movement right now. I think a great many people really do see this is wrong, this is immoral, this should not be tolerated, but there are still a great many people who are saying, wait a minute, these are people's livelihoods, and people's livelihoods are sacred, and you just can't go stealing. That's anarchy. So what do you say? Yeah, I mean, I'll say two things. One is, if you look at polling data, around 80% of Americans believe that animals should be protected from all suffering and harm, and this includes farm animals, because the same poll that was done didn't include just dogs and cats. It was also talking about animals and farms. So most people, and, and as a Buddhist myself, I can say most cultural traditions, including Eastern cultural traditions, have, have a deep foundation in compassion. And so when we see suffering of an individual animal, people from all walks of life, from all religions and creeds, from all races and nationalities believe that suffering should stop. And so what we found when we actually show people the VR or show people our investigations, whether it's the media, whether it's ordinary people, or sometimes even prosecutors and law enforcement, is that people support us. They support us, you know, and I'll give you a great example of this. A few weeks ago, we did our, our first daylight open rescue where um, a few hundred of us with white flowers on our hands nonviolently walked into a slaughterhouse in San Francisco, took the slaughterhouse over, sat down inside of it and said, you know, sir and, and, and gentlemen, we're not here to attack you or, or to hurt you. Um, we're here to help the animals and we're asking you, we're, we're, we're asking you to stop this violence, shut down the slaughterhouse and let us release the animals. And obviously the slaughterhouse was not very supportive of that ask, but they called the police in. And one of the amazing things about this experience, and this is reported on in BuzzFeed, is even the cops who had been called in to stop us from taking these animals out, when we showed them the condition the animals were in, when we asked them to smell the blood and feces and decomposing bodies in the slaughterhouse and asked them to and, and told them, we're taking these animals out and you're free to stop us if you want, but our belief is these animals deserve decency and compassion, even the police officer himself who was tasked to stop us and stop me from taking the animal out, said to me, just privately, just take them out. It's okay, you know? So he let us, quote-unquote, steal the birds because in his conscience, he could not tolerate letting a bird continue to languish and rot to death inside this cage. And what we found is that experience is not a unique one. People across the country and across the world, whether they're meat eaters or vegans, whether they're police officers or animal rights activists, do not want to see animals tortured. And what our mission should be is to expose the horrors that animals are going through and use direct action to show people a different path. So one of the things, um, uh, an amazing activist at MIT, I went to MIT as a grad student many years ago, and there's a guy who leads up the MIT Media Lab um, who's an incredible activist and advocate and has been for decades. And one of the things he says is that sometimes when the world's systems are so wrong and so corrupt that they can't be changed by legislation and by negotiation and by reform, you just have to break the rules. When the rule is so corrupt and so arbitrary and so horrific 
that the only way to change it is to break it. Somebody has to be willing to break the rule. And I think the way for us to ultimately change these rules, change the rule that conceives of a living, breathing, sentient creature who's crying out in pain as just a legal thing, an absurd and corrupt rule. The only way for us to change that rule on some occasions is to break it. And I think people understand that in this country because this country has a centuries-long history of the power of civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action. And we need to start using those tools for the animals. Wow. <laughs> Danielle and I just keep passing notes back to one another because um, <laughs> we're impressed. So, Wayne, looking ahead, 50 years from now, what does the world look like for animals? I think we will have a constitutional bill of rights abolishing animal exploitation and giving animals basic legal rights, including the right to be a legal person rather than a legal thing. And a lot of people hear me say this and they think I'm crazy that, oh, my gosh, I mean, people have been eating animals and torturing animals and conceiving of animals as things for thousands of years. And and I tell them right back, I, I am an economist and statistician by training. I went to school to study law and economics, and you know I was doing my PhD at MIT studying statistics. And all the statistics from my reading show us that even if we don't do any better than we've already done, we're on a trajectory towards animal liberation. And I'll give you one example of this. The Gallup poll has polled the public opinion on animal testing for most of the past, I think it's 10 or 15 years. I think it's about 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, when they first polled the American public on animal testing, only about 25%, one in four people were opposed to animal testing, right? That number has jumped up to almost 50%. It's into the 40s now. So it's increased by like 20%. And it's, it's at its highest point in history. This was just released a few weeks ago in 2017. And even if you just take a straight line trend, if you just like extend out that growth over the next 20 to 30 years, 100% of Americans will be opposed to animal testing within 30 years, 100%. That's if we do no better than we're currently doing, right? So this is just a realistic, pragmatic estimate about where the world will be in 30 years. And 100% of Americans will be opposed to animal testing. And I cannot imagine a world where we've all collectively decided that you cannot research on animals, and yet we're still eating them or using them for fur or leather. So, you know, I think there's so many numbers that are very positive for us. And instead of wallowing in our gloom and doom, and it's easy to do this because when we're in a movement where there's so much suffering and so much violence and we constantly have to see these animals being torn to pieces alive, it's really easy to be pessimistic. We need to have a bold and optimistic vision of change that's also realistic. And that's what we try to do at DXC. We set our roadmap for animal liberation that can be achieved in the next 40 years. And for us, our strategy focuses very much on cultivating compassionate cities one, one city at a time because that's the way it worked in many prior movements, in the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement. They had these city centers, cities like Atlanta, cities like San Francisco or New York in the gay rights movement, where they transformed the city one block at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one city at a time, and eventually they transformed the entire states. And so for us, we think Berkeley, California is key to our strategy because Berkeley has always been at the forefront of social change on gay rights, on civil rights, the anti-war movement, on free speech. And we think Berkeley will be at the forefront of social change for animal rights as well. So we always encourage people to come to Berkeley. We're also encouraging local activists across the world to start transforming their cities as well, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood. Make your entire city vegan. And if you're optimistic, if you're confident, if you have a good strategy and you constantly adapt and are flexible in that strategy, we can achieve a world where animal liberation is a reality within 40 years. Wow, I asked about 50 and you gave us an extra 10 years. Good <laughs> for the animals. That's, you know, 10 years. Billions of lives. Billions of lives, Dave. So I have a question just about not open rescue, but the direct action everywhere that I'm familiar with that I've seen. Um, And those are the ones where you're in Chipotle or Whole Foods. Um, And I think that there are some people that are are calm and sort of expressing themselves as you are, like very thoughtful and and very educated. But then you have people that are yelling. And so my question um, is, what are your suggestions as far as like how to make that an effective demonstration without yelling and how do you sort of talk to people that are in your movement to avoid that and what is the most effective way to go into a situation like that to get people's attention but also to inspire them to change and not just like get them mad at a whole food so absolutely. that they absolutely yeah you know nonviolence is the core of every successful movement and and this is not just ideological this is this is based on really good social science there's a wonderful book by a scholar named Erica Chenoweth that looks at 150 movements over the past 100 years and finds that nonviolent movements, I think, are six times as successful as violent movements. So, And violence isn't just a matter of physical violence. It can be violence in tone. It can be violence in your language. And it's really, really important for us to maintain nonviolence and maintain the love-based thrust of our movement. I mean, this is a movement that's about compassion. So in our words, in our actions, and in everything we do, we should be reflecting love and compassion for others. And, and frankly, even when people are beating me up, you know, 
like when I was in Ealing, China, and the dog meat treaters were assaulting me and slamming my head into the ground, and I left with bruised ribs and bruises all over my face. You know, it's important for us to act with compassion and love, even for our adversaries. Mm-hmm. Now, the tricky thing is when you're in a movement where there's so much violence happening and where there's so much secondary trauma, right? right. It's totally legitimate for people to be angry. And it's understandable for people to be angry. It's understandable for people to lash out at those around them. And, and this is something that Gandhi said, that anger is one of the stages of social change. It's not the stage at which we tr- achieve transformation, but we also cannot repress people's anger and say, hey, you're, you're angry and it's not legitimate for you to speak out and express that. So, you know, my perspective on this is, it's as I said earlier, the movement is an orchestra and there's all different sorts of chords. There's all different sorts of instruments. And while nonviolence and compassion and love have to be the central thrust of our movement, the dominant narrative that we're acting upon, I also am a very supportive and understanding of activists expressing and, and and I think those of us who believe that nonviolence is the key should be helping people who have a lot of anger express that anger in the most effective and constructive way possible. And you know, as a protester myself, you know, I have to say like ten years ago, I didn't have the sort of emotional control. I didn't have the speaking ability that I have now. Sometimes it takes a long time. So I see a lot of the protests we're doing is almost like an exercise. It's an exercise in nonviolence. It's an exercise in speaking out. It's an exercise in maintaining emotional control and using your love, your compassion for the world in a powerful way to transform the world around you. And there are going to be a lot of times where people might not strike the right tone. And from my perspective, instead of condemning them, what we should be doing is supporting them and saying, hey, you know, I'm so proud of you for speaking out. I'm so proud of you for doing what you do. Let's think about other ways where we could possibly be even more effective. And if we do that, I think we ultimately will transform every speaker and every protest in the animal rights movement into the most effective speaker they can be. So you mentioned that you have classes or workshops for open rescue. Do you have workshops for the people that are going into these locations um, for those protests so that you can kind of give a rundown of like what to expect for people who've never done this before? We absolutely do. And we do both protest trainings and nonviolence trainings, both by Skype and video conference, but also in person in our chapters mm-hmm. in the country. And while it's sometimes difficult for our smaller chapters in the mo- more remote regions of the United States to get access to those resources, we're trying to make them more available by video conference and by Skype and eventually maybe even by virtual reality. But training is really key. And you know, one of the things we learned from the civil rights movement is in the civil rights movement, if you were not able to maintain nonviolent discipline, you weren't even allowed to go to a protest. I mean, they'd go through extensive trainings and get vetted and make sure that if someone attacks you, shouts at you, strikes you on the face, you will not react to violence yourself. And we're trying to create the same sort of discipline within the animal rights movement so that when people do strike us, we come back to them with love. And love is a powerful force. It's, 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 it's not a weak force. And when you love, you do things like open rescue, right? You put your body in between the one you love and the oppressor who wants to hurt them. But love is also a positive force. It's not a force of condemnation. It's not a force of hatred. It's a force of love, of compassion, of building bridges rather than destroying them, and of reaching out to people and welcoming them people into this movement instead of trying to divide us from others. And I think that's the key. Just always maintaining that cultural principle that this is a nonviolent, love-based movement, and that even if we have anger, we try to transform that anger into positive change rather than let us weigh, let that anger weigh us down. So if someone wants to join you, um, not you specifically, but your movement, um, yeah. can they find everything that they need to at directactioneverywhere.com, or is there somewhere else that they can find you? Yeah, I think that's the, the website is a great resource. But we also provide mentoring for local organizers and activists, so you can email mentoring at directactioneverywhere.com. We have an amazing team of people, Priya and Almira, these incredible women who are leading our chapters around the country and training them. Um, they'll sit down and have a good Skype conversation with you about our values and principles. Uh, okay. But above all, the most important thing that you'll, you'll do to help you learn and become a more effective activist is just to go out and do it. And you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. I mean, I still make mistakes all the time. I'm making mistakes even right now, I'm sure, that I'm going to learn from and hopefully become a better activist over the next five years. But if we're humble, if we understand that mistakes are just a part of life and we always try and improve, we'll build a better movement for ourselves and more importantly for the animals. Oh, golly. Yes. That's amazing. I have, I have so loved being here. It's kind of a blessing that I haven't been able to talk much because it means I've listened more. And you mentioned Gandhi, and I think if he's watching, he would be really, really happy with what has gone on here in this hour and certainly with what you're doing in the world. So thank you so much for all of that. Thank you for bringing up nonviolence. So important. Thanks, Danielle Legg, for being amazing. And Wayne, I want to tell on Danielle, she's done a little bit of open rescue. It's a (laughs) tiny one, but she went to a slaughterhouse on her birthday and asked if they would give her a chicken. 
and they ended up giving her two. So we're all out there (laughs) trying to do our thing. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today. And thanks to Unity Online Radio. Thanks to our listeners. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes when we think we love someone, we're actually loving what we think the other person may be able to give us. Love at its highest level demands nothing in return. Love is much more than an emotion. It is an inner quality that sees good everywhere and in everybody. It insists that all is good, and by refusing to see anything but good, it tends to cause that quality to appear uppermost in itself and in other things. Ask yourself, what kind of love am I radiating? Do I love with no concern about what I'll receive in return? Make the choice to love unconditionally, purely for the sake of loving. You'll become a healing, harmonizing influence on everyone and everything in your world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. notice how the funniest things happen when we stop taking ourselves too seriously and step out boldly? Listen to Funniest Thing with Daryl and Ed as these unlikely saints administer a refreshing dose of laughter and love that will inspire you to step out boldly and experience the funniest things. Join the discussion with Daryl and Ed live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Central Time on Funniest Thing, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.